Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Valerie Kaur. Valerie is a seasoned civil rights activist, award-winning filmmaker, lawyer, faith leader, and founder of the Revolutionary Love Project. Valerie burst into American consciousness in the wake of the 2016 election when her Watch Night service address went viral with 30-plus million views worldwide. Valerie now leads the Revolutionary Love Project to reclaim love as a force for justice in America. As a lawyer, filmmaker, and innovator, she has won policy change on multiple fronts, hate crimes, racial profiling, immigration detention, solitary confinement, internet freedom, and more. She founded Groundswell Movement, Faithful Internet, and the Yale Visual Law Project to inspire and equip new generations of advocates. Valerie's new book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, was just released in June of 2020. I also said that um, I was talking to Parker Palmer. We were doing this this program together, and he mentioned your name, Valerie, and in such delight. And I said, "She's my uh, she's my last new friend I met in physical space." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. Like, you it's my been last all internet ever too. since. <laughs> we met, and I was in uh, California for all of February, and we had lunch together toward the end of that time, and. Uh, it was the first time we'd gotten to meet, although I'd heard so much about you, Valerie, and, and it was so exciting. I made a new friend, and then I went into quarantine <laughs> everyone else. And here we are still finding a way to hold fast to each other. It's great. It's wonderful. So I'm so happy to welcome you to the Meta Hour today, and true congratulations on your book. So Thank you. We are both recording remotely from our respective quarantine homes, and um. Your book just feels like perfectly timed for the world as it is right now. Mm-hmm. So for those who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you start by telling us a little bit about how you came to activism and to your path? I grew up in California's Central Valley. I grew up on the farmland that my grandfather had farmed. He had sailed by steamship from India to California back in 19. 19- 13. So he had survived the 1918 Spanish flu, both of the world wars. I mean, he lived a century of, of American history. And I remember growing up, you know, riding on tractors and looking up at the stars and feeling so deeply connected to the land and to this place. I had this deep sense of belonging in America and in California. I also grew up with my mother's father, my papaji, I called him. And he would give me stories of the Sikh faith, and he would tell me stories of gurus and saints and warriors, and he would ignite my imagination with um, this idea that I, too, could walk a path of revolutionary love. He would say, don't abandon your post. He would point one finger to, you know, say, my beta, don't abandon your post. So when I came home from school after racial slurs in the schoolyard, it was my grandfather who said, don't abandon your post. That what it means to walk the path of love is to look up on the face of anyone around you and, and say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Sharon, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Mm. 
And if I see you as my sister or brother, even if you refuse to wonder about me, I must wonder about you. I must let your grief into my heart. I must be able to fight for you when you are in harm's way. So the Sikh ideal is the Sant Sabai or the, the sage warrior. The warrior fights, the sage loves. Mm. So it was a path of revolutionary love. And so I grew up with this sense that I could be sick and I could be a warrior <laughs> and I could be deeply American. And of course, all of that fell uh, apart for me in the wake of September 11th. I was 20 years old when hate violence broke out uh, in city streets across America in the wake of the horror of those attacks. And one of the first, the first person killed in a hate crime after 9-11 was Bulbir Singh Sodi. He was a man I knew. I called him Bulbir Uncle. And his murder really turned me into an activist. I had my grandfather's voice in my mind, don't abandon your post. Mm. And so I grabbed my camera and I began to capture the stories of Sikh and Muslim Americans who are facing hate violence and trying to tell those stories as a way to, to fight for my community. And hate violence was soon followed by state violence. So I knew that I had to become a lawyer. So over the years, so many years, almost 20 years now, Sharon, um, I'm a civil rights activist who has a really large toolkit, uh, filmmaking and lawyering and, and organizing and speaking and, and now writing. And all of that for me, you know, I, I remember in 2016, I still had this idea in my head that our generation of advocacy was going to make the nation safer for the next generation, right? My, my grandfather sacrificed for me so that I could be freer than he was. But now 2016 came and I was a new mother. And I was reckoning with the fact, you know, hate violence was exploding in our national consciousness, even, even now. And it remains high, uh, rivaling the numbers that we saw after 9-11. So I was reckoning with the fact that here I was a new mother and my son was growing up in a nation uh, more dangerous for him than it was for me or even than it was for my grandfather. And I opened up my toolkit, my activist toolkit, and I was just paralyzed. I couldn't pick up any tool. I needed, I needed to be able to find a way to last. If the labor was this hard, if the labor for justice was this hard and this violent and this long, how was I going to last? And I was given a gift that few women who are mothers and activists are ever given. I was given time off mm -hmm. <laughs> and a room of my own. And I had a book advance that allowed me to take a year living out of the country with my family. I lived in the rainforest for a year. And I sat at my writing desk every afternoon and watched the mist float through the valley. And I poured through the stories of my life and the sick faith and social movements of the past. And I began to see patterns emerge, patterns that I began to call revolutionary love. And really, Sharon, it was the love that just returned me to the stories that my grandfather taught me when I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. So it was like coming back home. And so now this is what this book is. See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love is all of that consolidated wisdom. I wrote it for my own survival. And now I'm realizing that perhaps it's for, for our survival too. I think of you every time I see an image in the media of a sick person or group feeding people mm. uh, because there's something we talked about when we had lunch is just that um, need to feed people, to take care of them in, in that tangible way. And uh, it's so interwoven in my own background in India and, you know, ways people would 
uh, celebrate or Burma as well. You know, the way some event was commemorated, your daughter graduated from high school or something was celebrated, or even the way you would respond when somebody in your family died would be you go feed people. Yes. And and it's just (laughs) a fun thing, you know? Yes. Well, even the Sikh Gurdwara, the house of worship, is organized into two primary spaces. The Divan Hall, which is the, the prayer hall, and the Langar Hall, where you you sit and you serve and you share food together. And they say in the Divan Hall is where you, where you, where you remember God. But the Langar Hall is where you realize God. It's mm-hmm. only through service do you find liberation here and now and a return to the truth of, of love and oneness that our faith teaches. It's beautiful. Well, your book is such a journey in the power of love. And that, of course, is something that I've spent a lot of time trying to um, reclaim, even just the word, reclaiming, or sometimes I say redeeming the word from yes. the assumptions that we are taught to to bring forth. You know, that I remember when I was writing um, Real Love, uh, which was my book, my most recent book, um, until the next one. and. Uh, People in the publishing industry were saying things like, um, oh, that topic's done. It's overdone, you know, or mm. it's that, that market is saturated, I heard. And they said, well, I don't mean romance, actually. You know, like usually we think how to get a relationship, how to fix a relationship, how to leave a relationship when we think of love. But it, it's not that at all. Right. And, you know, Sharon, as a lawyer, I was always trained to like be skeptical whenever anyone used the word love in public. Mm. You know, they said, oh, love is the answer. You know, I would just roll my eyes or I would cringe because it was about thoughts and prayers and, and no action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it's because, as you say, that the primary reference for love in our culture is romantic love. It's this rush of emotion. And that changed for me when I remember the first time that my son was placed on my chest when he was born and I was just shaking and sobbing from mm-hmm. the rush of oxytocin that was flooding my body. And my mother was next to me and she was, you know, opening up her bag and getting out the dal and chol and beginning to feed me, <laughs> like mm-hmm. feeding her baby while I was feeding mine. And I looked at my mother and I realized, oh, she has never stopped laboring for me. Mm my birth to my son's birth, now to my daughter's birth, she knew what I was just beginning to learn that, you know, love is more than any single rush of feeling that love is sweet labor. It is fierce and bloody and imperfect and life-giving. It's a choice that we make over and over and over again. And you can ask any caretaker, anyone who's taking care of children or parents or friends that when love is labor, love contains all of the emotions, right? Not just one. It's like joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. And anger, anger is the force that protects that which is loved. And so I, I think of revolutionary love as, as, having, as being brave enough 
to see no stranger, to, to love others who don't look like us with that kind of ferocity and that kind of dedication. And I see that in the streets right now, Sharon, as millions of people are mm-hmm. risking their own lives during this pandemic to grieve together and to rage together and to fight together and to breathe and push together. That's revolutionary love. That's so beautiful. I was, um, I was talking to somebody earlier today and, and uh, they asked me about grief and I said something I, I felt you know, looking at my own experience and also I was um, referencing somebody's quotation and I said, grief is love that doesn't have the normal place to land. You know, someone has gone, a lifestyle has gone, expectations have gone, something is gone, but the core of it is love. Yes. And, and that's very important, I think, to see. And all of that is very important, the joy and, uh, anger and every element of it. Yes. Yes. In fact, I'm wondering if I can read to you. Yeah, please do. Message. Grief is the price of love. Loving someone means that one day there will be grieving. They will leave you or you will leave them. The more you love, the more you grieve. Loving someone also means grieving with them. It means letting their pain and loss bleed into your own heart. When you see that pain coming, you may want to throw up the guardrails, sound the alarm, raise the flag, but you must keep the borders of your heart porous in order to love well. Grieving is an act of surrender. Mm, Beautiful. In my uh, teaching, you know, for all these many years, I've found... I would say almost two main controversies around the idea of love. One is um, confronting the, the belief that it's a weakness, that it's sentimental, that it leaves you kind of enervated. And, and the other is the idea that it can be cultivated, that it's not only a gift, you know, that might appear somewhere. We can actually cultivate it. We can strengthen it. We can learn to abide there in a very different way. So, um, you categorize three different areas to cultivate love, loving others, loving opponents, and loving ourselves. So I'm wondering if you could say some about these three. Well, I, I believe that love is only revolutionary if it has no limit. And I thought about these three ways to cultivate love because any one of them by, the, by itself feels limited. Um, loving only ourselves without loving others or our opponents, loving only ourselves is escapism or a form of narcissism. And that's what so much of the self-help industry has fallen into the trap of, tricking people into believing that they are, if they just focus on themselves, if they just heal themselves, and that's enough to heal the world. And I really love my yoga mat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really love like my meditation tapes. And I really love like being able to practice loving myself well, but so often if I, if I do that and I'm not paying attention to the domestic workers who I'm paying to look after my children as I'm doing that work or the structures or institutions that I'm participating in that are crushing the lives of people of color or black people around me, that I am participating in spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. And so loving only ourselves is, is escapism. Loving only our opponents without loving ourselves or others, that that is a form of self-loathing. And that's when we're pushed to forgive or or pushed to reach out to our opponents in a way that denies our own dignity or the dignity of others. And then loving others without loving ourselves or our opponents, that that is ineffective. 
And that's where I see that where so many of our social movements have been in the last few years, that we have built bonds of solidarity that we have never seen before. I mean, truly phenomenal when I see dreamers marching with Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter marching with Sikhs and Muslims, marching with folks who are indigenous at Standing Rock and just seeing all of these beautiful struggles for liberation bound up together. But if people are not also cultivating love for themselves in the process, then how many activists do we see burning out or getting sick or taking their lives? Um, loving ourselves is, is essential to staying in that long labor for justice. And at the same time, what does it mean to, to fail to love our opponents? We, we choose to love our opponents, not, not for them, but for, but for us so mm-hmm. that we do not become like them. And, and what I'm so excited by in this moment is that I'm seeing all three practices alive right now in the uprising for black lives that we, that we, that are spilling out into our streets and into our industries and into all these parts of our lives, because people are moving from resistance, just resisting bad actors, right. To reimagining institutions of power, Mm -hmm. reimagining institutions in such a way that frees all of us, our opponents too. And that's why, that's how I believe love becomes revolutionary, that it can become, that it can become a force for social, political, and spiritual transformation. In the traditional Buddhist practice of loving kindness, um, there's this category of wishing well to a challenging person in our lives. And uh, when I was practicing in Burma, say they, they wouldn't say difficult person. The translation was enemy, which made it very dramatic. Um, and it's a pretty tall order to love those who've hurt or betrayed us or we've seen, we've witnessed, you know, are, are really harming others. And it takes, I think, such a, a personal wrestling with what love actually means. And, you know, I hear this all the time that I don't feel like loving all beings, you know. And when I was, uh, I was teaching a group of friends, I think it was, uh, about loving kindness for all beings, which does not mean, you know, surrender or acquiescence or agreeing or approving. Um, but it's like this bone deep sense that our lives have something to do with one another. Uh, but when I, I was teaching this group and this friend said to me, you mean like I have to love Stalin? Like, hmm. and I thought this was just a few years ago. And I thought that's a pretty old fashioned sort of example. Like <laughs> who worries about loving Stalin these days, you know? Um, <laughs> But that's where she was for some reason. Uh, you know, so whoever that being is that that defines the boundary, like the impossible, um, that's a very interesting place to be because it really demands, I think, that we examine what we really mean by love. Yes. Oh, forgiveness is not forgetting. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is freedom from hate or animosity. And I have found that whenever I am engaged in that long process of forgiveness, of recognizing that my opponent uh, is a human being, mm-hmm. then it's an act of liberation for me. There, there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who uh, do what they do out of their own sense of suffering or pain or insecurity or anxiety or blindness. And once that happens, then 
my opponents. And I, I have sat with white supremacists. I have sat with prison guards and soldiers. I've sat with former abusers. That's taken me very, very long time to sit with and to, and to be with and to try to muster my own bravery, to try to listen to, to try to love. And anytime I do that, anytime I'm safe enough or ready enough to do that, then, then the monster in front of me begins to dissolve into a wounded human being. Mm-hmm. Beneath the stories, beneath the beneath the beneath the slogans, and beneath the sound bites, I begin to hear their story. I begin to hear their pain, and I begin to feel a sense of of liberation. Because participation in oppression comes at a cost; it cuts them off from their own ability to love. And and here's the thing: as an activist. When I choose to love my opponents, it's not just moral. It is strategic. It is pragmatic. Mm -hmm. It is how I gather the information about the cultural norms and the institutions of power that allow them to hurt me. So what radio programs are they listening to? What are they reading? What are they digesting? Who is giving them their guns? Where are they putting their money? All of this gives me information for how to be a smarter activist and how to hold up a vision of a nation that includes them too. Mm. It's beautiful too. I mean, I was also reminded in listening to you of this time I was teaching in Berkeley in a church and there was uh, quite a large number of presenters on the stage. And uh, when they asked for questions, this, this man said, um, you know, there's certain political figures that I just cannot stand. And he said, I look at myself and I see that my reckless or my disconnected or, um, unkind actions really come from a place of pain, but I look at them and they don't look like they're in pain. They look pretty self-satisfied, like they're happy with their lot in life. So he said, what should I do? And it was so interesting because there were any number of us sitting on the stage and it was just like this dead silence, you know, like nobody wanted to answer. (laughs) So finally I answered him and I said, I'm with you. I understand. Like I look at some people and I think if you could just fray a little bit around the edges, you know, it'd be easier to recognize you are a person in pain. But what I do is I consider myself like the laboratory, you know? So if I look at myself and I see those things I've said or things I've done coming from a place of pain, I think it's pretty likely that the things they are doing are also coming from a place of pain. And and that's the doorway into some, some empathy. I remember sitting with, um, with white supremacists who were, who were telling me that, um, that, that if you line 10 black people up in a row, then seven of them are the N-word and three of them are black. And I said, I'm sorry, you don't believe every person is a person. Mm-hmm. I, and th- they said no. Mm-hmm. And it woke me up to the fact that Black Lives Matter is simply not true on its face right. for an alarming number of people in this country. So how, how how, you know, the audacity to try to love someone like that. I mean, my initial response in my body is revulsion and disgust and I want to leave. And then I sit with their words and I sit with their words. It's labor, right? It's labor to listen to someone who just you find so uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. The longer I listen to their words, I could hear how painful it is to move in a world where you believe that there are human beings who are subhuman, who are out to get you, that your country is slipping away from you, that you are marginalized, that you are alone, that you are. And they wear their pain in the form of violent machismo 
or hateful ideologies, but we know that that is just a limited way of experiencing and moving through this world. Yeah, your life gets very small. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about how revolutionary love is loving others, opponents, and ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think each of us has a different role in the labor at any given time when we think about a larger movement or a larger community. Like in this in this moment, I I am not safe enough <laughs> to sit with Trump supporters, not emotionally and sometimes not physically, or or with white supremacists. Um, but and my task right now is to try to keep my family safe, to try to keep my loved ones safe, to love ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to survive this time. But there are others, I think about white people in my life who are in a position where they're safe enough in order to have those conversations and sit with them and try to love them when I can't. Mm-hmm. And if we all are playing different roles in the labor of revolutionary love, then the labor becomes sustainable and we don't leave anyone behind. So if you can't love Stalin or right. you can't love the white supremacists, or you can't love a relative who has hurt you or an ex or whoever it is, it's okay that that forgiveness is a long process. And sometimes withholding forgiveness is itself an act of agency. It took me a long time. I remember one of the stories I told, I tell in this book is surviving sexual assault. And the, my abuser just came at me again and again and again, asking me to forgive him. And I would not Mm -hmm. because it was another way of him taking power from me. And he had to figure out how to heal without my forgiveness. Withholding it was important to me. But at some point, it was about 20 years after the fact I was ready. I was ready to let go of that piece of animosity that I was clinging to. And once I started to do that very slowly, I could see him not as a one-dimensional monster, but as a very wounded and frail young man. And I could release myself of the burden of hating him. That's when I forgave him. In the meantime, other people had to love him, right? Not me. Yeah, no, it's true. (laughs) It's not, I mean, I think of that and I talk about that too. You know, it's not, sometimes our job is to survive. <laughs> yes. You know, and as long as that's, we're coupled with the understanding that love is not a weakness, you know, it's not the same as approving or giving in that I I can honestly see that, you know, there would be times when I would say my job is to survive, but I actually don't want this person to just continue on, you know, without any possibility of themselves getting free of this. And for one thing, other people would be happier if they were happier, just in a, you know, kind of snarky way. That's true. Um, but there's, there's almost a breathtaking potential and a tragic limitation in, in terms of the choices people make. And, uh, I can well imagine not necessarily when I am, you know, the one who's suffering, but in a kind of larger sense in the way you described it, that maybe it is um, a good thing to wish that someone can offer that kind of uh, loving kindness to somebody. That's it. That's the loving act when you can't sit with your opponents to give permission to allow others to do so. Mm -hmm. And what happened with um, this man who had hurt me when I was a girl was that 20 years later, because 
I I had been able to take in a love enough love into my body and that someone like my family members and others had loved this man enough for him to heal and reckon with what he had done we could sit together and reconcile with each other mm. and we held this reconciliation process that was truly just I never it, it was previously unimaginable and it set us free Sometimes reconciliation comes, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Reconciliation requires both people to having undergone that process. But I know that in the meantime, in order to get there, that long process of forgiveness was for myself. And it's also fascinating what you said about the kind of slogan, Black Lives Matter, because I've been pondering lately, like for the people, and this is before, you know, this kind of more recent time, but for the people who had a very antagonistic response to hearing it, I, I kept thinking, what are they hearing? Are they hearing only Black Lives Matter? Mm. And so there's this feeling of, of, well, I've got to assert that, you know, I matter too. Or are they hearing in, in the way you describe these people that even Black Lives Matter? And that's much yes. scarier as a prospect, you yes. know? Yes, it's you know I feel like this is a moment where all of us are are being pushed who are not black. Uh -huh. all, when I say all of us have different roles in the labor, I feel like for for so long black people have held have had that labor just on their shoulders, not just to bear the brunt of oppression, but also to lead the movements for civil rights that the rest mm -hmm. of us benefit from. And they've had to labor for so long alone. And what is so uh, inspiring and extraordinary about this moment is that we've never seen so many white people and so many non-black people of color in this movement, in the streets. Like when we see them standing in front of black people who are kneeling in front of a an army of police officers and we're seeing mm -hmm. white bodies protecting them. I mean, that that is, uh, those are images that are we have, ne I'd never thought I would see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, um, you know, Sharon, I, I've been thinking a lot about birthing labor as a metaphor that if we think about progress in America as one just straight line of linear progress, then we, you know, we are, we are sliding backwards. But if we think about the story of America as one long labor, then progress in birthing labor is cyclical and not linear. Mm -hmm. And so this moment you know, it feels like 1968 for so many Black people. It feels like 1992 for so many of us. I'm here in Los Angeles. But in, in 2020, there, every turn through the cycle opens up a little bit more space for equality and justice and gets us a little bit closer to what is wanting to be born. And so to see how that space is opening up now in forms of solidarity and acts of revolutionary love, oh, it gives me hope. Mm. But I don't know how many more turns to the cycle it's going to take. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't just like in birthing labor. You don't know when it's gonna when the baby's gonna come. So you just you know, like our job is to, to is to show up in this moment and to breathe and to push in this labor to do our part. We never do know. So you've also given birth to the Revolutionary Love Project. So can you describe that? <laughs> Yes, it's uh, it's really this book is the sort of the, the anchor of the project that um, 
we believe that it's uh, it's time to reclaim love as a force for justice. So we think about Kingian nonviolence and King's call to love and imagining what it might mean to give all, all the people who are tired right now, but who are wanting to show up in the labor, what does it mean to give them the tools and practices and the stories and the frameworks to, to live and their lives and to struggle for justice with love and through love? And if love is labor, then love can be modeled, love can be practiced, love can be taught, um, and love can be shared and inspired in each other, cultivated, as you say. So um, we are launching a learning hub that goes along with this book, with this framework for revolutionary love and these 10 core practices, wondering, grieving, fighting, raging, listening, reimagining, breathing, pushing, transitioning, and letting enjoy. Those are our 10 practices. Mm. And we're equipping folks, educators, parents, um, activists, um, artists, uh, faith leaders who are giving people the tools to take this framework and put it into practice in their own lives. And so uh, if folks go to seenostranger.com, they'll see the learning hub revealed later in the summer. And we also have book clubs so people can read together and, and take the learnings from the learning hub and put them into practice together. Tell me about the book clubs uh, a little bit, because they sounded very exciting when I looked at, at the site. Well, in a time of pandemic where everything is virtual and yet we need each other more than ever, we've been trying to think about ways to bring people together in community that feels very authentic, even if we can't be in the same room. And so we've launched um, a virtual book club series where folks can create their own book clubs, like for activists or queer people or educators and so on and so forth. Um, or they can join an existing book club. We'll be reading together. I'll be dropping in and in being in conversation with folks. Uh, we'll be having special guests and we'll be doing this through the summer. And the idea is to give us some energy and some uh, vision for how we want to show up in November and and on all the years to come, how we want to show up in this labor for justice with love. So that this is our invitation to get started now this summer with us. That's fantastic. Um, it's, it's so beautiful for me to see, you know, love is um, celebrated and as powerful as you describe it. And it feels like our live, lives work, our life works. <laughs> the things we each do. <laughs> we're dedicated to is like oh look at that it's like another face of the same thing that's exactly right that's what gives me so much energy is that we are part of a groundswell that that we are putting love in the zeitgeist you know for a new time for a new generation and in our own languages in our own um platforms in our own with our own audiences with our own tools and to see how you have lived your life giving people the ability to do that deep transformative inner work inside of them to lead um, their lives with love. I'm just meeting you from the space of social justice and here mm -hmm. we're meeting in the middle <laughs> and, so and learning from each other. And I have learned so much from you, uh, not just in our, in our friendship, but from all of the work, the books, the meditations you have put out into the world. And so to be here as your sister now, I know that, you know, I will last because we're all in this together. Yeah, well, thank you. And I wonder if, um, I hate to let you go, but of course you have a life to lead <laughs> and two kids. Um, but to close our conversation, I would love for you to lead us in some kind of practice if, if you'd like to. Sure. So I invite you all, I invite you, Sharon, and all of us listening to put our feet on the ground. And just notice the difference between holding your body up 
and letting the earth hold you up? And what if you could trust the earth with all of you? Good. Give it more and more of your weight. Good. I invite you to take a deep inhale with me. Let it come. Let it go. Let it come. Let it go. Just becoming more and more aware of your body and in this space. Let it come. Let it go. Turning your attention now with a sense of curiosity, a sense of wonder, at what you might find in your body after listening to this conversation on this day, in this moment. What emotions might be living in your body, but just start with just sensations. Noticing tension and lightness, compression and ease without changing or judging or shaming what you find, just noticing as if you're collecting information, starting with the crown of your head, the space between your eyes, noticing your jawline, saliva in your mouth, noticing the dark secrecy of your throat. Is it dry? Is it supple? Taking your attention to the back of your neck, shoulders and shoulder blades. What are you carrying in your body in this moment? And it's okay if you feel a lot or nothing at all. That too is information. As you're running your attention down your right arm. Good. Down your left arm. Good. Taking your attention to the back of you, letting your attention be so light as if you're running a feather down the length of your spine, noticing your mid-back, your lower back, noticing your pelvic floor, where are you sitting in your body, what sensations do you notice now? That may not be true about what you noticed before. Good, with a sense of curiosity, wonder, surrender, I invite you to notice the space in your chest, your heart and your lungs, what is open, what is contracted. Taking your attention to your belly, your beautiful soft belly, just noticing what you're holding. Where is your breath in this moment? Taking your attention down your left leg now, all the way to the ground, feeling the contact between your foot and the earth. Running your attention down your right leg now, all the way to the ground. Contact with this foot and the earth, and just noticing the difference between your right and left side. I invite you to hold up in your mind's eye a visual map of your body, almost as if you have just collected all of those sensations and are seeing where they live in your body. And if you can give in a name of an emotion to what it is you are feeling right now, maybe several names, several emotions, what comes to mind?
Good. Placing your hand on your chest now. Both hands on your chest. Holding that visual map in your mind and those emotions. In this moment, you are here. In this moment, you are alive. In this moment, you are safe. In this moment, you are brave enough to feel this, to let yourself feel this completely. And know it's okay to feel. I invite you now to scan your body and I ask you if there was one place in your body where your deepest wisdom resides, where might it be? Maybe the crown of your head or your belly or your chest. What? Choose one place without judging. Good. And if you can take a deep breath with me and breathe into that space, let it come. As you're sending breath into that space, I invite you to get curious about what form your deepest wisdom might take. Does it have a form? If you could give your deepest wisdom a shape, would it be an animal or an object or a landscape? I see in my mind's eye a golden throne and the wise woman on me in me sitting on that golden throne. What is it for you? Just let the first thing that pops in your mind be okay. Good. With every inhale, taking more breath into the body, letting that part of you, that image grow stronger, brighter, more vibrant, fuller. Yes, good. This deepest wisdom in you has been longing to tell you something, has been waiting for the noise in the world and the noise in your mind to get quiet enough for you to hear this piece of wisdom about what you need to be brave in your life and to be brave with love. Just listen for a moment. And let whatever you hear come to your lips. Good, I invite you to do one more thing with me. Maybe you need energy, maybe you need rest, maybe you need support, maybe you need love, whatever it is. Honor that need. And now you can place your attention back on your feet. And I invite you to imagine that there are roots shooting down from the bottom of your feet into the earth. The roots are going down, growing strongly, down, down, deep into the earth. And now the roots are going horizontally. They're seeking out my roots. They're seeking out Sharon's roots. We're seeking out each other's roots. Imagine these roots being tangled, growing around each other, strong, vibrant, full of life. We are like trees in the forest. We look as though we are standing apart, but truly we are interconnected beneath the earth. We are interdependent. And that means that we can receive what we might need from each other. We can give what we might need to give to each other. And so that thing that you needed, the thing that that deepest wisdom told you right now, I imagine you, I invite you to imagine that we are sending it to you through your roots, that Sharon and I are sending it to you through your roots. And with every inhale, let it come. You're taking it up and up through your feet, through your calves, through your thighs, up into your heart. Good. Let it go. 
We're sending it to you again. Can you imagine? Let it come. Letting it fill your body. Let it go. And if there's anything that you wish to send us, send it to us now. Good. Let it come. Receive. Let it go and give. Let it come. Receive. Let it go and give. Let it come. Receive. Let it go and give. One more time, very slowly. Let it come. Receive. Let it go and give. Letting your body rest now for a moment. After all of that good, good work. Letting your breath go easy. Noticing the impact of all that giving and receiving on your body. I can feel my feet tingling and my calves tingling and my heart open and I thank you for all that you sent me. Time folds in on itself, and love truly is mysterious. I invite you to unfurl your fingers and slowly open your eyes again, stretching your body to the sky. And know that whenever you feel alone, that you only have to place your feet on the ground and to feel us with you. And whenever you feel like you don't know what to do next, that you can always go back to the image that came to you of your deepest wisdom and let it speak to you. For this is a time to be brave with our wisdom, to be brave with our love, not just for yourself and your loved ones, but for this country, for this world, for the future of humanity. You matter. And your revolutionary love is what we need. You are brave. You are brave enough to give it and to receive it. Well, thank you so much. It's so great to be with you again, even virtually. And thank you all for joining us today. To learn more about Valerie's work, you can visit her website at www.seenostranger.com. And when there, you can get yourself a copy of Valerie's book, See No Stranger, that is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Plus, you can join her fabulous book club, one you're right there on the website. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.